Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke's Gospel. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That story you just heard read takes place at the very end of Jesus' life, just 10 days before his death, this famous encounter with a guy named Zacchaeus. And it's famous for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's famous is because of these uh, physical details about him being short and climbing a tree, which make it a great story for children, inherently interesting to children. And uh, the subject of one of the top three or four children's Sunday school songs of all time. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there, for I'm coming to your house today. Yes, I'm coming to your house today. Yes, I'm... Well, you get the idea, but... Uh, kids love the, the song because it's about this, this short guy. It's funny, uh, when I was a kid, because of this song, I thought Zacchaeus was like a, a leprechaun, like, you know, a, a, a wee little man. And it's the same thing with my girls now. They, they're obsessed with the height piece. They always want to know, well, how tall was he? You know, like up to your belly button, up to your, up to your shoulders. Kids, because they're so short, are, are really into height. Uh, because height to them is like power and authority. So I, our three-year-old Kate, I absolutely blew her mind the other day when I was trying to explain to her that you could be taller than somebody that's older than you. This was a complete contradiction to her. We were walking home from school the other day, and she, out of the blue, she says, Dad, God loves us no matter what, and he's taller than anyone. That is a, a tenant of her theology, which she just made up. So height's a big deal for kids, and they like this story because Zacchaeus is short. He doesn't say he was, like, supernaturally short. He's just short, so short that he can't see over the crowd. But the other reason, the more, far more important reason the story is so famous is because it is one of the clearest examples we have in Scripture of this classic process of finding Jesus, of finding God, of conversion, of salvation. And I'm using those words intentionally, even though I know that for a lot of you, there is this 
knee-jerk reaction to those kind of religious-sounding terms, like salvation, ugh, like, I think I'm allergic, you know, I just hate the sound of it. But the problem is, there's just really no way around it, because that's what this passage is about, the S-word, salvation. Jesus says at the end, salvation has come to this house. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. And Zacchaeus shows us there's a process. There are three steps. First, you have to climb a tree. Second, you have to hear your name. And then third, you change for good. Those are the the three things we're going to be looking at this morning. First, climb a tree. Second, hear your name. And third, change for, for good. Three parts to the sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, climb a tree. The first thing Zacchaeus does, and it's the centerpiece of the song, he can't see, so he, he climbs a tree. He doesn't let the fact that there's a crowd that he can't see past get in the way. He's, he overcomes this obstacle, he puts a little effort into it, because he, quote, says, you saw this in the text, it says he, quote, wanted to see who Jesus was. That's it. He just wanted to see who Jesus was. He's just curious Jesus was by far the biggest celebrity of his day. Massive crowds everywhere he went. He was the thing that people were talking about. So Zacchaeus had heard of him, of course, but you know, no TV, no YouTube. He had never seen him. And he, he's coming through his town. He's got an opportunity, and he says, well, I, I at least want to go see what all the fuss is about. And I, I think that is a rational response. I think it was a rational response for Zacchaeus, I also think it's a rational response, the only rational response for people today. Because Jesus starts out as the biggest person in in his time and place, biggest celebrity of his day. He is now the most famous person that's ever lived by by a huge margin. There were uh, these computer scientists a couple years ago that developed this algorithm uh, and did this analysis of, on Wikipedia, you know, uh, so length of pages and number of edits and number of links to try to determine who's the most influential person who ever lived. And it was a lot more complicated than that. They wrote a 400-page book published with Cambridge University Press. So I'll save you the 15 bucks. Jesus. Jesus comes out number one. And we didn't need an algorithm to tell us that this, the, the, one of the authors of the book says this in an interview. He says, we would call Jesus the most significant person ever. With over 2 billion followers, a full 2,000 years after his death, Jesus is an incredibly successful historical meme. And that's, <laughs> that's quite the understatement. What's, what's, so there's no debate. There's no debate that Jesus is number one. The only question is, what's the margin? that separates him from whoever's next on the list. You can debate about who's number two, but whoever it is, what's the margin? Some of you know I'm a a devotee of Abraham Lincoln. So one of the things that that Lincoln scholars often point out, they love to say that there have been more books written about Lincoln than anyone besides Jesus. They say this all the time. And last count, there's around 15,000 books out there that have been written about Abraham Lincoln, number two on the list. So that's number two, 15,000. Well, how many books have been written about Jesus? Not 15,001. You know, it's, so let's just say it's 150,000. It's way more than that, way more than 150,000. But even if it was only 150,000, that puts him at 10 times the, the next closest person on the list. 
And my question is, somebody that, that's this big a deal, by this big a margin, shouldn't you just be a little bit curious about who they are? Just, just a little bit, just curious. Not as a, a, a spiritual exercise, just as a responsible citizen of the human race. If an alien showed up on Earth tomorrow and your job was to educate them about everything that's happened on the planet so far, you say, okay, it's 2017. And they'd say, 2017 what? 2017 years from what? And, and you say, well, uh, this, this alien speaks English, by the way. So uh, <laughs> you say, it's the year 2017. They say, 2017 years from what? And you say, well, from Jesus, I guess. And they would say, Jesus who? And you would realize in that moment that this is where the curriculum begins. This is class number one, because Jesus is, love him or hate him, the biggest thing that has happened on this planet so far. And you should go and look for yourself. Go and look for yourself. Climb a tree. Put a little effort into it. Investigate. You notice when when Zacchaeus climbs the tree, what he's doing is he's getting above the crowd. He's elevating above the crowd so that he can look straight at Jesus himself, which means that he doesn't make the same mistake that a lot of New Yorkers make, which is to judge Jesus by Jesus's fans. He doesn't look at the crowd. He doesn't like, what you're going to see in a minute, the crowd doesn't like Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus doesn't like the crowd. This is the crowd of Jesus's followers, the people that say they like Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't look at them, he looks straight at Jesus. But New Yorkers, what they do is they say, well, Christians are judgmental, Christians are hypocritical, Christians are are narrow-minded, Christians are intolerant, so I've seen all I need to see. I don't need to look at Jesus because I can can judge by his followers. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. You say, why not? Why, Why isn't that fair? It's not fair because Jesus didn't like his own followers. All through the Gospels, the only people he yells at, the only time Jesus gets really upset and really snippy, is with religious people, with church folk. He says in one place, he says, just because somebody says, Lord, calls me Lord, doesn't mean that they're one of mine. In other words, somebody can claim to be a Christian, that doesn't mean they are. They can claim me, that doesn't mean I claim them. So you've got to get past the crowd, stop judging Jesus by his fans, and look straight at Jesus. And what I have found is that there is a shocking, shocking degree of ignorance among people that are otherwise extremely intelligent, extremely well-read, extremely educated, but just have no idea who Jesus actually was. And in lieu of education, in lieu of actually reading about him, what they do is they just supply their own pet theories, which they don't hold up to any critical scrutiny at all, but they're totally fine with them. They say, well, you know, the way I've always seen it is, I think Jesus was this great moral teacher, and then, you know, hundreds of years after his death, they, the people started making up these, these myths and legends about how he came back from the dead. That's how I see it. Well, okay, that's objectively historically false. All historians, believer and non-believer, agree that the message from day one of the Christian faith is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the core of the message. Christianity is stubbornly historical. It's not a philosophy. It's not a spirituality. When we sing those songs, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come event. that's not like metaphor. It's not like spring and new life and eggs. 
this is a historical claim, and it's been that way since day one. So you got to get rid of that. You say, well, i got other theories where that one came from. I think that his first followers then, they, they first, you know, his earliest followers, they just made it up. They just made up this idea that he rose from the dead. Again, there is just highly improbable. If you know anything about first century Jews, you know there are a dozen different reasons why this is the last sort of thing they would ever make up. There was a movie that came out last weekend called The Case for Christ. And I should preface this by saying that I have never seen a Christian movie that I didn't hate. Um, They're very heavy-handed and sappy and and poorly acted. But this one wasn't. This one was actually really good. And it was the story of this guy named Lee Strobel, who was this uh, award-winning editor at the Chicago Tribune, this really hard-hitting journalist type. Went to Yale Law School, was the legal affairs editor. And written all these big exposés, these big pieces. It was really a big shot. And his life falls apart when his wife decides to become a Christian. And it's this major crisis for him because he really feels like, I cannot respect, I cannot be married to someone who believes in something that has no basis in reality or fact. So he, he sets about trying to solve his marital problem in a typically male, typically legal, typically journalistic fashion, he, he does research. And uh, unbeknownst to his wife, on weekends and in the evenings, he spends months trying to, to dig into it and build this case that he's going to present to his wife about how Christianity is just hocus-pocus. And, you know, the Jesus that people worship on Sundays has no connection to history and the Gospels are myths and legends. And like I was just saying a second ago, he, you know, smart guy, really smart guy, had never looked into it before. So he had all these theories that he just assumed were great. And as soon as he starts doing the research, he finds out that none of his theories and none of his assumptions have legs at all. And instead of disproving Christianity, he becomes a Christian. So the the title of the book he wrote is the same as the title of the movie, The Case for Christ. And my challenge to you is, if you have any interest in world events, in world literature, in history, at all, just for the sake of remedying this giant hole in your education, read the book. You owe it to yourself to read the book. And what we'll do is, if you write the word uh, curious on the back of your welcome card before you hand it in, we will email you. We'll buy you a, a copy of the book on Kindle and email it to you, which the nice thing about reading it on your Kindle is that uh, you can read it on the train and nobody has to know that you're reading it. <laughs> That's the first part of the sermon, the first section. The first thing you have to do is you've got to climb a tree. The most famous person that's ever lived, by a massive margin, you owe it to yourself to find out who he was, not by looking at his fans, not by reading the newspaper and you know, judging the, this particular voting block, but by looking at Jesus, the man himself. That's part one. Number two, the second thing that you see with Zacchaeus, the second thing you have to do is you have to hear your name. So Zacchaeus' plan, he just wanted to catch a glimpse, like we were saying. He's up on the tree, but it goes differently than he was expecting. When Jesus gets to that spot, he looks up at Zacchaeus, he stops, he you know, kind of detours from the parade route, goes over to the tree, and he looks up and he says something remarkable. He says, Zacchaeus. Why is that remarkable? Well, because Zacchaeus' name was, was probably something he didn't hear 
very often, his first name. You saw in the passage it says he's a tax collector. It also says he's very rich. So what that tells us is that being a tax collector then is a lot different than being a tax collector now. Obviously, if you work for the IRS, you don't get rich. And the way it worked then was it wasn't that you got paid a flat wage by the government. It was that you got to take a percentage. You got to take a cut off the top, and you got to set the percentage. You set whatever additional rate hike you thought you could get away with. So it was something that could make you extremely wealthy, but also extremely unpopular. Zacchaeus was the most hated man in his community. And that's the real reason he can't get through the crowd. You know, normally a short person, you let them through. They're not going to block your view. The crowd doesn't want him to get through. And at the end of the passage, when Jesus says, I'm going to go stay at your house, you, you see what the crowd says. They say, I can't, you know, again, back to this idea of Jesus' followers being hypocritical and judgmental. They say, I can't believe that he's going to stay at the house of that sinner. That sinner. They don't even use his name. He's just the sinner. And that's not the worst thing he had been called. You know, they, they never called him Zacchaeus. They probably called him everything else in the book. Sinner and scum and dirty and whatever else it is. Traitor, thief. Zacchaeus never heard his name. He always heard all these other names. And the funny thing about names is we act like it's no big deal. You know, the, the saying... Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Well, the truth is the exact opposite. Sticks and stones may break your bones. Names forever scar you. The wounds of a broken bone heal. The wounds from being called names never really heal. I was talking to a friend just this last week, actually, who is adopted. And he was saying that he he still vividly remembers being on the bus and kids pointing at him once they found out he was adopted, and laughing and saying, orphan, orphan. That was the name that they gave him. That's who you are, orphan. And it still gnaws at him today. But it's not even just the, like, the mean names. You know? So everybody's got these, these really mean names they've been called that stick with them. It's not even just the mean names that I'm thinking about here. It's also just functional names, role names. So I'm thinking about my wife, Brittany, 90% of the time somebody calls out to her, the name they use is mom. Now, sometimes it's, it's really sweet, you know, like, I love you, mom. Sometimes it's not so sweet. Mom! Mom, 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 mom! From the other side of the house. Our girls, um, you know, a child's survival depends upon the ability to get the attention of the parent. So our girls have carefully experimented and honed the precise intonation and rhythm and volume of their voice to make it as annoying as possible so that it's piercing like an ambulance siren. But mom, the point is mom, so she's called by mom. That's, that's most of the time somebody calls her name, it's mom. Well, mom doesn't capture it. Mom doesn't capture her. She is called by a name most of the time that doesn't represent her. Even though it's not a, a mean name, but it still doesn't represent her. It's not the true her. And it's not even about the, the name itself. So even in my own relationship with her. I don't call her mom. Fortunately, that'd be kind of weird. But um, <laughs> I, I call her Brittany. I call her by her first name. But what does that name mean to me? When I call her Brittany, I 
try to see her for, for who she really is. At the end of the day, she's my wife, and she's part of my life, and I see her through my filter and my lens. And the reason that most marriages are such a disappointment to the people in them is because the expectations are way too high. Because you think that this person is going to see you for who you really are. And there's no way. There's no way. It's not going to happen. Because there's only one person who sees you for who you really are. There's only one person who sees your entire history, who sees you all the way to the bottom. The way that David put it, greatest poet of all time, most read poet, songwriter of all time, the way he put it 3,000 years ago in Psalm 139 is he said, Oh Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, when I go in and when I come out. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too high. I can't attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I take wings on the dawn, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Your right hand always guides me. For you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Every day of my life was written in your book before it came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. The reason I have that memorized is because I want it etched on my soul. The reason that my girls, age three, five, and seven, are memorizing that psalm right now is because I want it etched on their soul. And I want to ask you a really personal question, which is going to offend a lot of you, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, what are your kids memorizing? And I don't mean that literally like, are they memorizing a passage of scripture? I don't care. I mean, what is being etched on their souls? Because there are only two possibilities. One is that they're a complete accident of random biological forces and that someday, given enough time, everyone they love will be forgotten. The other is that God knit them together in their mother's womb and that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that every day of their life was known in his book before any of them came to be. And he knows every name they have ever been called, every name they ever will be called, And he says, no, that's not who you are. Let me tell you who you really are. This is who you really are. Now, in response to that, I think you could say, basically, you know, back off. Because to each his own. It's fine if you want to teach your kids that. I can see how you might want to teach your kid that. Because it's a nice, feel-good thing to believe. But for me, I don't want to teach my kids fairy tales. But that's just it. You don't even know that it's a fairy tale because you haven't even looked into it. You just assume it's a fairy tale because it has a happy ending. If we put your reasoning in the form of a syllogism, it would go, all fairy tales have happy endings. Christianity has a happy ending. Therefore, Christianity is a fairy tale. That's a fallacy. That's a fallacious argument. It's called the undistributed middle. It's so fallacious that it even has a technical name. All dogs have four legs. My cat has four legs, therefore my cat is a dog. It it makes no sense. You just assume. You just assume because it gives hope. You just assume because it feels good to believe that it's false. And that assumption is totally groundless. You don't know that it's a fairy tale. 
at all. And what Jesus comes and says to Zacchaeus is, Zacchaeus, I don't care what anybody else has called you. I'm calling you by name. You know what the name Zacchaeus literally means? That the meaning of the name is clean, pure. He says, everybody else calls you dirty. I know what I created you to be, clean and pure. And the reason that I am a Christian, I mean, the first reason I'm a Christian is because I think it's true. But the second and more important reason I'm a Christian, functionally, practically, in terms of the benefit to my life, is because Jesus can tell me who I am in a way that my wife and my kids and my friends and my parents cannot. And I've got a great wife and great kids and great parents and great friends, but none of them know me like he does. On the one hand, none of them know how bad I am. None of them know the stuff I think about. None of them know how awful I can be in my thoughts. But on the other hand, none of them know how good I could be like Jesus does. None of them see No matter how much they believe in me, none of them see my potential like he does. That's the second thing. It's the second step in the journey. You have to hear your name. Hear your name. And that takes us to part three. Third and finally this morning, first you climb a tree. Second, you hear your name. Lastly, just a minute or two on this one. Lastly, you change for good. That's what happens at the end of the passage. Zacchaeus changes. He starts out being this guy that doesn't care and he will cheat anybody to make a buck. At the end, he's giving all his money away. Conversion. Salvation. So what happened? What happened in between? The, The question we're really asking is, where do you find the motivation and the drive to change? Because all of us want to change. We all have ideas about ways we'd like to change. Here are all the things I'd like to stop doing, and here are all the things I'd like to start doing. But, but where do you find the drive? Where do you find the motivation? Now, the question of motivation to change, the question of motivation and drive in general in your personal life, your moral life, in your family life, totally different question than the question of drive and motivation in your career. Because when it comes to career, it's very obvious. The biggest driver in career, the biggest driver of achievement by far is the desire to prove others wrong. I don't know if you've ever seen Michael Jordan's acceptance speech, the Basketball Hall of Fame. If you haven't, it's worth watching. You know, they're supposed to go like five minutes. He goes 25, and he, he thanks. So everybody else is thinking, you know, my mom and my coach and my friends. Michael Jordan gets up there, and he thanks every one of his enemies, every one of the people that said he couldn't do it, every one of the people that disrespected him. So I like to, I like to thank that, that coach in seventh grade that cut me. I'd like to thank that guy that dissed me on the court, you know, on this day at this place because he drove me. There is no question that the desire to prove others wrong is this massive driver of top achievers, big time. And there's one person in particular that will will drive you more than anybody else. There's one person in particular, if you want to prove this person wrong, that will help you to go farther and faster than all of your peers. And that's if you're trying to prove your dad wrong. If you look through history, the great men and women, great achievers, there's this remarkable correlation the number of times that there's a broken relationship with their father. And they're trying to prove, look, you ignored me. You shouldn't have. I'm worth something. I was listening to an interview with Debbie Millman, who's one of the uh, biggest living graphic designers and branders, you know, uh, Pepsi and Star Wars, Campbell's Soup, massively successful. And so she's uh, doing this interview, and then she's taking listener questions. 
And one of the people asked her, they said, what do you think separates high achievers like you? And I, I was shocked by how honest and how spot on her answer was. I want to read you what she said. She said, for me, I have profound insecurities and I use my work to create meaning for my life. I think people that aren't as driven in their work might have had just really good parenting (laughs) and don't feel the need to make a name for themselves because they just feel intrinsically good about who they are. She said that. She, she literally said that. And she's so right. And here's the really sick thing, is that some of you are thinking, yes, that's why I have an edge. You know, you're thinking, great, you know, I'll use it. I'll use it to my advantage. But here's the problem. The problem is the exact same thing that is so effective at driving success in career, exact same motivation, doesn't work at all at home. Doesn't work at all in your personal life. It doesn't transfer. It works for achievement and success, but it does not work when it comes to how do I become a person I can live with and respect, and how do I develop these relationships with other people that last. So having a successful career, big deal. People do that all the time. Their personal lives are a wreck. The question is, how do you have both? How do you have it all? How do you have a great career and yet still be this person that morally you're becoming somebody you like, and you have these relationships that are really substantive? And the answer is you have to have a different motivation. It can no longer be about proving somebody wrong. It has to become about proving somebody right. And that's what happens with Zacchaeus and Jesus. Jesus calls him clean and pure before it's true. He says, Zacchaeus, you're clean. You're pure. You're good. I want to hang out with you before Zacchaeus is any of those things and before he's someone that anyone should want to hang out with. But because Jesus loves him when he is nothing, all of a sudden it flips a switch. And instead of wanting to prove somebody wrong, he wants to prove somebody right. Jesus said all those things about me. I want to prove him right. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because what every other religion says is, do these good things and then God will love you. And what Jesus says on the cross is, no, I love you. I love you now. I love you regardless of what you do. I love you first. And because of that, because of saying all those things about you first, it flips a switch. And you're free to become good, to become this person you never thought you could be because he loved you when you were nothing and you want to prove him right. So that's the passage. That's Zacchaeus' story. And the reason it's such a powerful one is because it's the specific instance of something that that Jesus does for every person. In Revelation 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who lets me in, I'll come in and eat with them. So the invitation is there. And for some of you this morning, you know, going back to the second point, hear your name. Hear Jesus call your name. For some of you this morning, that's happening. Jesus is calling your name. I'm not saying for everybody. I'm saying for some of you. And you say, well, why for some of you? Why not for everybody? I don't know. I've been around church my whole life. All I know is that for some of you in this room this morning, Jesus is calling your name. And it's up to you to decide how you're going to respond. It's up to you. You say, well, it's not fair. Zacchaeus had him there in the flesh. You know, Zacchaeus got to see him in person. I I haven't gotten to see that. 
But going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you've gotten to see a lot more than Zacchaeus had. We said this whole thing takes place 10 days before the cross. Zacchaeus hadn't seen the cross. Zacchaeus hadn't seen the resurrection. You have. It's the biggest thing that's ever happened, split history into before and after, and all you've got to decide is, what am I going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, every other love we've known, we've had to do something to get it. We've had to prove ourselves. We've had to earn it in some way. And so when you come and tell us that you love us just the way we are, and when you call us pure and good and clean before we really even are acting that way, we don't know what to do with it. I pray that you take this sense of disorientation, this sense of confusion, and that you would use it in our lives to fuel a search. That we would climb a tree, that we would put some effort into looking and seeing who you really are. And that in the process, we'd hear our name. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.